0: is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Farmers in the Lindano Valley fear the revival of a mine proposal they thought was dead after being rejected in 2021 could cost them everything.
2: We need clean soils, clean water and clean air to produce these ready-to-eat salads and spinach bags that we're so successful at. Any risk drawn into our area that threatens
1: that is not necessary. More of that today on the Country Hour. Hello, work Long with you. It's great to be back in the chair of a program I love and I'm looking forward to spending most of 2023 with you right here. Also today, one of Australia's biggest dairy companies talks milk prices and a difficult 12 months, Australia's trade minister prepares to go to China and will go to South Africa where rolling blackouts are costing farmers dearly.
3: We we are still trying to to estimate uh, all of the costs in South Africa, but right now it's well over one billion rand that has cost farmers uh, so far.
1: All of that and more coming up on the program. But first, here's Emma Field and rural news.
0: G'day, Warwick. Making rural news this Monday. The first shipment of live cattle this year from Queensland is about to leave as 5,000 Brahma feeder cattle head to Indonesia. In the 2019-2020 to 2020 financial year, Townsville was Australia's largest cattle export port, shipping 395,628 head of cattle. But volumes slumped to about 145,000 head in the following year. Operations Manager for Livestock Shipping Services, Jack Webb, says there's optimism numbers will improve this year.
4: Yeah, look, We have had a um, significant drop in numbers uh, as previous, and a lot of that has been from the, the FMD um, LSD outbreak in Indonesia. But with increasing vaccination rate, we do anticipate for the export numbers to be higher in 2023.
0: A new bid to acquire the former Longreach Pastoral College will see a secretive investor group, along with key industry operators and companies, join together to buy the land and infrastructure. The college was closed by the Queensland Government in 2019. AAM Investment Group is coordinating a consortium in what it says is, quote, an important plan to retain and return critical training services to the Australian agriculture industry and local community. AAM Managing Director Gary Edwards says the collaboration won't divulge its members but wants to buy the Longreach Pastoral College assets with planned for further investment to turn it into a modern place of education.
4: So I wouldn't like to formally announce uh, people but what I can say is that we've had uh, significant uh, expressions of involvement from large private graziers, from corporate graziers, and other companies involved in agriculture. Longreach, given where it's located, has a very proud agricultural history. That the, the previous model of the, of the college structure failed and ultimately everybody needs to acknowledge that, that it wasn't attracting the students and the companies. So, But what we're looking at is that we know that we all have requirements for education for the people going through our businesses, uh, particularly those seeking career progression or Openly careers in agriculture as a whole. And what we're looking to do is consolidate our resources and work together to collaborate to restore this to being an educational facility that all of Queensland can be proud of from an agricultural perspective.
0: New research, which monitored feral pigs with electronic collars, suggests the pest animals spend most of their life in an area the size of a football oval. Work by Northern Biosecurity Group in Western Australia's Midwest, along with WA's Department of Primary Industries, concludes pigs may not move as far as people assume. Deep Herd researcher Stuart Dawson says unfortunately for landholders, the conclusion from their findings is that if you see feral pigs on your property, they're probably going to be around for a while causing damage.
5: Generally speaking, they have a very small range that they use a lot of the time. And they have a larger range that they foray out into maybe 10% of the time. So they're very much like us. 90% of their time is spent in their favourite spot all day while they're, where they're hiding and sleeping, I guess. And then often they'll go for, for trips, maybe looking for other pigs if, if they're mating or looking to find new areas for a bit of food. So sometimes they can spend you know, 90% of their life in an area the size of a football field and then often when you when you zoom out their activities over a few months it gets to often up to 25 30 square kilometers
0: wool markets hit their highest point of the year last week exporters say there was overwhelming interest in the wool sales and the AWEX eastern market indicator hit its highest point since October 2021 elders gippsland district wool manager maddie gallagher says growers can expect a few more good weeks ahead
6: It was a cracking week to sell wool if you have wool in the market last week.
0: Uh, Due to a currency drive on the Friday, the exporters were met with just overwhelming interest over the weekend. So this resulted in the highest EMI of the season and the largest daily MPG increases since October 2021.
7: Good fleece types,
0: which consist of wools that are usually 20 newtons and higher, VM of 2% or less and a length of 70 plus with no cock colour or other qualifiers, are currently at their lowest quantity of the decade. So this adds to the squeeze and force buyers to reach into their pockets. And that's
1: Rural News. Thanks, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. And thank you to you, Emma, and to the entire ABC Rural team here in Victoria uh, for basically holding the fort while I was away for the last two months. I think what we've all learned is basically I'm not required. We've got a fantastic team of journalists at ABC Rural in Vic and uh, they did a great job over the summer period and uh, continued to bring you all the news that you needed to know and uh, it's been brilliant and I'm very grateful to them all. So thank you very much for that.
0: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Let's get into the show proper, though. Despite having to pay record milk prices to Australian dairy farmers, giant dairy company Saputo has reported stronger earnings in its latest third quarter results. Ahead of this week's National Dairy Conference in Hobart, where you'll hear a lot of dairy news come from over the next week or so, the chief of Australia's largest dairy company sounded upbeat at the release of the financial details which he presented to the Canadian Stock Exchange. Tony Briscoe's report starts with Lino Saputo, Jr.
8: Following a solid first half of the fiscal year, our positive momentum has continued across all our sectors in the third quarter. We delivered strong results, reflecting our focus on execution, and the advancement of our strategic priorities. Consumer demand for our products in the third quarter was strong, despite increasing prices compared to last year. Dairy remains an affordable, flexible, and accessible option relative to other proteins on the market.
9: In a webcast from Canada, Saputo released details of its latest result for the period ending December 31, 2022. And according to Chief Financial Officer Max Thierry, the bottom line looks good.
8: Consolidated revenue were $4.6 billion and 18% increase when compared to last year. Revenue increased due to pricing initiatives implemented in all of our sector, higher average market price for cheese and butter in the U.S., and higher international cheese and dairy market price. Ongoing inflationary pressures on input costs and commodity market volatility were successfully mitigated by pricing initiatives.
9: Latest result for Saputo comes in a year where record prices are being paid to dairy farmers who supply the company, and the scramble for milk continues with the big processes. His company chair, Lino Saputo Jr.
8: In Australia, pricing initiatives and healthy demands supported top line results, while reduced milk availability continue to impact efficiencies, margins, and our ability to fulfill demand in our export market. We make good progress advancing on the Australia Network's optimization plan. In Q3, we announced our intention to permanently close our MAFRA facility and streamline activities at two further facilities in Liangatha and Malau. These changes take effect in Q4. These measures are part of our roadmap to increase capacity utilization, reduce costs, and drive improved returns on invested capital in Australia.
9: Chief Operating Officer for Australia's Saputo Division is Leanne Cutts, who says the milk formally processed at the plants being closed will be handled at other facilities in various states.
2: We talked about the pricing. So yes, both the uh, market pricing obviously uh, did benefit our Australia Division. At the same time, we still have headwinds uh, around our lower milk intake. Uh, actually, we now obviously just passed the flush milk season as well for Q3. So, sequentially, we're seeing, you know, improvements. Um, And, of course, we'll need to keep, uh, obviously, an eye on milk in Australia. Um, we managing our milk intakes a key priority for us, but equally as important is actually what we do with that milk, Um, and we believe we can still be profitable. And maximise the value of every litre of milk from the Australian platform.
9: Despite the problems in the Australian setup, Lino Saputo Jr. told the presentation he had no regrets about purchasing the assets of Murray Goulburn and would do so again in a flash. As for the future and the continuing ups and downs of the world market,
8: as we close out the fiscal year and look forward to next year, we're paying particular attention to the following areas. First inflationary pressures remain high across the supply chain and on wages. In response, we are focused on executing cost savings, in addition to pricing initiatives, to offset some of the cost pressures we cannot mitigate. Second, our elasticities are only moderately increasing, and we see good market demand. But we are closely monitoring for signs of changing consumer behaviors. Finally, our labor initiatives will need to deliver further results and what remains a challenging labor market for us to accelerate the recovery of our U.S. sector and execute our global strategic plan initiatives. I'm very pleased with our year-to-date performance.
1: That's Leno Saputo Jr. from the dairy giant company Saputo, ending that report on the latest financial results for the company to the end of December 2022. Interesting words in there to follow really is the look at cutting costs and finding efficiencies and what that may mean for further consolidation in Australia. If that is to come, we'll have to hear or wait to hear more from that company, I suppose, over the coming weeks. The Australian Dairy Conference is being held in Hobart later this week too, and our Tasmanian colleagues will be there with a lot to discuss. We'll bring you as much of that as we can to our program over the next week or so, so stay tuned for that. Let's stay on Dairy too on the Country Hour right now because whilst... Record milk prices are still around this season. They could still be rising with a few step-ups in the, in the price paid to dairy farmers over the last couple of weeks. Richard Lang is the General Manager of Commercial Development and Milk to Market, and he can join you now. Welcome to The Country Hour.
10: Hi, Warwick. Uh,
1: how are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Looking at milk prices, really, and there's been somewhat strangely compared to previous years, some, some movement during the season this year, and, and especially in the last couple of weeks. Who's lifting milk prices? Oh, well, last
10: week Warwick uh, Fonterra lifted 15 cents a kilo. Uh, they're quoting their milk pool to being $9.55. And uh, the previous week, uh, Coles lifted just the back-end prices by 8 cents. So uh, they're a little bit higher than uh, the majors, but it's certainly been um, quite interesting to watch because of the high prices during the year to see how the, the top three, if you like, Saputo, Fonterra and Vega, have been uh, tracking on their prices.
1: So where do their prices sit right now?
10: Look, the, they're all around the mid nines, you know, depending on uh, the profile, encourage any individual farmer to run their prices through the companies. But it's around 940 up to around 960 is is where the majors are sitting. And it that's at an all-time high, obviously. Um, some of the smaller companies, which are more domestic focused, are a little bit higher than that. You know, the 970, 980, thereabouts. They're but it's, it's mid to high nines as it stands this year at a time when we weren't expecting too much activity, but certainly the, the companies are seeing shortage of milk supplies being a key driver.
1: Yeah, with opening prices and then revisions of those opening prices before the season began, milk prices were left at, at record highs. And I suppose there wasn't much thought the market would move m- much after that, but that hasn't been the case. There have been step-ups.
10: Well, I think um, what it says is input costs have been high this year, Warwick. Um, The fertiliser costs, fuel, then the floods. And companies are looking to encourage farmers to continue to invest in their inputs, uh, to buy the fertiliser and the feed, uh, to get the milk to hold on, because the back half is always traditionally tight. But this year, particularly, uh, it's been very tight in supply.
1: And of course, these are published prices, but individual farmers with agreements, that individual agreements with companies may be getting much more already this season.
10: Yeah, I think um, there, there's a published price, uh, which is the pool average for the companies to give in the indications. There's also uh, the, the Value Milk Portal, which uh, is published uh, as an average across all the companies. And of course, Milk to Market has a milk price calculator to enable farmers to do their individual uh, profiles and uh, we'll give you a, a comparison across the each company for your individual farm
1: and is there much else to, to read in sort of where milk is going this season and how that sort of affects the market?
10: yeah, I think there is um, there's certainly uh, given the tight supply situation, the domestic market is playing a greater part in uh, in impacting on prices. so I think having said that there's probably three things to look for. One is uh, fertilising feed prices, getting an early read on where that's going and what that price is. Uh, the exchange rate, which always affects commodity prices, is is going to be an important factor. And obviously the, the lifting of the um, the uh, bank rates uh, has an impact on that, that exchange rate. And then the other key commodity, I think is something to keep a look, at, look out on, uh, is the skim milk price. Um, uh, skim milk price is... Last year in, in April was uh, averaging around 4,600 and at the moment it's tracking at 2,800. So that's having a, definitely a negative impact on anyone who um, has uh, exposure to that uh, commodity uh, market and it's certainly going to play a part uh, amongst the processes and, and what, what, what sort of price that can
1: offer. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warwick. There you go. That is Richard Lang, who is the General Manager of Commercial Development at Milk to Market. You're listening to The Country Hour.
0: On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour.
1: Let's go to Gippsland now where vegetable producers say they fear what could happen if a proposed East Gippsland mineral sands mine which was rejected by the state government in 2021 is revised. It revived, I should say. The proposed fingerboards mine at Glen Allerdale is very close to the Lindanoe Valley which has 12 large horticultural farms producing salads, broccoli and other vegetables. The company behind the mine, Calbar Operations, has also rebranded with the new name Gippsland Critical Minerals, claiming it's now a renewable energy company. Here is CEO Joseph Paderico explaining the company's plans on Friday's Country Hour. Since the
11: Minister's assessment, I guess we've been working over the past 14 months, working hard to provide more information and additional processes to address the issues that were raised in that assessment. So we've gone through this pretty important process because we really believe in this renewable energy project and the contribution it's going to make to reducing the global carbon emissions. And I guess in recognition of the changes we've made over this period to build in the stronger environmental safeguard, we basically changed our name to symbolise the fact that it's a new and better project.
1: Well, Frey's farm producer, Kim Martin, says he first heard about the mine's possible revival through the media and believes the risk of the mine to agriculture and the environment are too high.
2: And it sounds like they're proposing uh, a similar, very similar project in the same location as what Kalbar did with some different words around renewable energy projects and minerals for a better world. The, the problem will always be is the position, the location. It is just so wrong. Um, I'm actually pro-mining, but not there. Not, it is so ridiculous to have had this project get this far um, based on its location, it is crazy.
0: So, what is your biggest concern about where it's located in relation to where your business is and, and the whole of the Lyndenau Valley?
2: I think it's bigger than that. It's the whole catchment of the you know the lakes and rivers of the, of East Gippsland. So, we've got uh, a really successful food industry here in the Lindano Valley, growing you know fantastic products, value adding, and uh, very successfully. And any possible threat to that uh, industry that exists today has got to be taken very seriously. So obviously, it's contamination. We need clean soils, clean water and clean air to produce these ready-to-eat salads and spinach bags that we're so successful at. Any risk uh, drawn into our area that threatens that is, is not necessary.
0: What do you think consumers would make of a product that was potentially contaminated?
2: What you've got in Australia is you've got three major retailers that are selling the bag salad. And um, you know what happens when there's a, uh, an issue in our industry, with it, whether it was um, you know needles in strawberries or weeds in spinach. They simply stop buying the product right across uh, rather than just try and focus on where it's actually come from. So if we have an industry that comes into our catchment and presents, Um, potential risks through uh, fouling our water, fouling our soil, fouling our air, it's in direct conflict with our very successful industry that's that's working really well here in East Gippsland.
0: Do you think there's any way that the company could rework their proposal to allay your concerns, such as they talked about, you know, they're going to make a smaller footprint, they're going to do something around dust and potentially change some of the water requirements?
2: Oh, that's the beautiful part about our country, isn't it? Anybody's allowed to propose anything, and I think we'd all welcome a reworked you know, proposal on anything. That's, we'll have to see what they come back with, but I'll, I'll just go back to the location. If anybody's in doubt, you just go to the proposed site and have a look where it is. You, know, you, can, you can virtually throw a stone into the Mitchell River, uh, and it's the top of the catchment that leads right down through the Lindano food Bowl, out into the Gippsland Lakes through Painsville, Meatong Lake's entrance and, and everything. You know, it's, it's got a lot of potential disaster. There's a lot of work being done on um, runoffs from the different uh, streams. I was involved in the uh, off-stream storage project for the Lyndon Valley and we looked at those gullies where they're talking about mining. The um, historical stream flows were unreliable. To look at holding water. We all know what happens in those gullies when there's an east coast low, is the water flows through there at unmitigatable amounts. So it seems to me with these mining projects that these tailings dams seem to be the, the problem that afterwards. Well, you're never going to hold anything back in that area when we get one of those rain events.
0: The company has promised to do consultation and they say they've already consulted the community. Do you think that's been adequate or do you want to hear more from what they're proposing?
2: I haven't heard anything from them. I just heard uh, your story. Um, I was aware that, that a new type of sand mine uh, proposal was going to be put forward. But you know, Minister Richard Wynne previously has uh, yeah, condemned the whole project for uh, environmental and horticultural reasons and rightly so.
1: That's Lindeneau salad farmer Kim Martin speaking there to Emma Field about that proposed, well, the the revival of the proposed ma- uh, mine for uh, East Gippsland Mineral Sands Mine, speaking there in the Lindeneau Valley. You're listening to The Country out It is 27 past 12. Let's talk cropping on the program where farmers are being urged to do everything in their power to control stripe rust this season after that crop disease wiped out wheat yields and grain quality in large areas last year. Controlling volunteer wheat, which are plants that pop up on their own, choosing wheat varieties with a good disease resistance rating and putting in place, place comprehensive fungicide regimes are all going to be high on the agenda. For farmers, Hari Dadu is a research scientist at Agriculture Victoria, and he says there are few reasons why stripe rust was so bad last year.
12: One is it was so early in the season. If I'm not wrong, I have seen rust in May to June itself, which was so early. And also, it was significantly high in pressure on the varieties that we have sown, which were mostly susceptible as well. And why it was early? It was mostly driven from New South Wales, which had a good season for rust in two thousand twenty one The other reason was farmers were uh, caught caught by a bit bit of a surprise because um, that was the rust was so early and also there was so high pressure, which means they couldn't keep up with the control strategies due to the fact that rust um, spread is quite quick and the other thing is um, later on in the season we had plenty of rains, so which means farmers couldn't get their sprayers into paddocks as well so which means ultimately we had high yield losses and also grain quality issues as well in one of the trials uh, that we had a bud chip we had 50 percent feed losses in such a tool variety of-
5: mm, so 50 percent would have taken a, yeah. a spectacular crop to, back to being a very average crop yes what do farmers need to be aware of right now to make sure that that doesn't happen again
12: yeah, the good thing is um, we know that we had a really bad season, so which means it gives an opportunity to look back at what control strategies we can actually have in place. The first thing, uh, first and foremost thing to remember is rust is a uh, pathogen which actually survives on a living plant, which means like it only also it only lives on wheat. Uh, so getting into the paddocks and removing the uh, voluntary weeds, I would say, which are growing from the leftover seed that was coming from the previous harvest, is the best thing. This is a, not just for a single farmer, but it is a sort of a community activity. It would be good if uh, your fellow neighbours also do the same thing.
5: Okay, so making sure you spray out those volunteered wheat plants, uh, what else needs yeah. to be done?
12: The second thing is um, uh, choose um, resistant varieties and also avoid susceptible varieties, which means uh, uh, you are keeping at least 50% of yield loss out of your way. For that, uh, uh, identifying the best varieties for your purpose, you can actually uh, look into cereal disease guide, which Agriculture Victoria produces every season.
5: And from what we saw last year, did did the damage or the resistance correlate with with the ratings in that disease guide?
12: Yes, to a certain extent, definitely yes. Because the other thing why uh, I was saying it was certain extent because there was so much of fairly rust uh, last year, which was high in pressure as well. So which means like we are getting um, innumerable number of spores to control. So which means we don't have that. We didn't have that management strategies in place and didn't actually plan for that.
5: What else can be done?
12: Farmers can have a really good plan of, on in terms of what fungicides they can use. And then um, the normal saying for stripe rust is, as you see it, you spray. But in this case, you can be a little more proactive um, because we had a very bad season, So what, which means like you can have upfront options, uh, such as uh, flutrifle and fertilizer.
5: Are you worried that? I mean, I guess we're talking about what happens in an ideal world. But if not everyone's doing all of those things, are you worried that we are going to have another bad year for rust?
12: Yes, definitely. Uh, knowing what happened last year, and also because of the rainfall that we had last late last season, so which means it produced ample amount of soil moisture, and also there was signif- uh, there was slightly better summer rainfall as well to on the, to the record. So which means you have all those wheat um, plants from uh, previous season growing again. So they are going to harbor the strike rust, which will actually cause damage to the incoming season.
1: That's Hari Daidu, research scientist at Agriculture Victoria. He was speaking there to Angus Verley. Coming up on The Country, we've got the weather report for you. Then Australia's Trade Minister will speak about a possible trip to China and when that is likely to be. But right now, let's find out what's happening in regional news headlines with the newsroom today coming to you from Shepparton and Courtney Howe. Good afternoon, Courtney.
13: Good afternoon, Warwick. Your lawn Power Station operators, Energy Australia, have been fined $1.5 million over the death of a power station worker in 2018. 54-year-old Graham Edwards was performing routine maintenance at the site when a circuit breaker exploded, burning 90% of his body. He died a day later. It was three years before WorkSafe press charges with Energy Australia pleading guilty in December last year. The state government has announced it will build more more than 130 new homes for young people across the state to address youth homelessness. New houses will be built in some regional areas, including Wangaratta, Wodonga, Greater Shepparton, Bansdale, and Mildura. The new builds will include a range of housing options, such as youth foyers and youth-supported accommodation. Police have charged a woman over a car hit After a car hit a police vehicle and then into another car in Delacombe near Ballarat in the early hours of Sunday morning, the driver of the car has been charged with 14 offences, including eight of reckless conduct endangering serious injury. Two police officers and one of the passengers were taken to hospital for observation, while the two other passengers were uninjured. The Department of Education has accepted Devonish primary school students' enrolment forms following several failed attempts. Parents met with the department on Friday after the state government did not assign a teacher to the rural school at the beginning of the term because of declining student numbers, despite there being three more students than last year. A parent of one of the kids says she'll continue homeschooling her daughter until the government advertises and fills the teaching position. And boating restrictions have eased on the Murray River between Walkall Junction and the South Australian border. New South Wales introduced speed limits and other rules last year in response to persistent flooding. The restrictions have been lifted, but vessel operators are being urged to be cautious on the water and follow all signage. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Warwick.
1: Thanks, Courtney. Courtney Howe, there with regional news headlines.
0: You're with Warwick Lough for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: You're also with Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, to update you on how things are looking around Victoria as it starts to get hot this week, Michael.
14: That's right. Good afternoon, Warwick. We've got fairly cool conditions still uh, in the south with southerly winds and mostly cloudy skies as well, but pretty sunny across the north. But uh, across the state today, temperatures still... A fair bit uh, below average for this time of year. So uh, today we're looking at tops around 24 to 28 across the north, but in the south around uh, 19 to 24, so around 6 to 8 degrees uh, below average for this time of year. But uh, as we head into Tuesday, we do see a high pressure system moving uh, across Bass Strait, so pretty settled conditions, partly cloudy in the south to start the day, then uh, a sunny afternoon. Sunny conditions across the north, temperatures a bit warmer as well, looking at the low to mid-20s in the south, high 20s to low 30s across northern districts. And we'll see the winds turning uh, southeasterly as well, so plenty of sun on uh, Tuesday afternoon across the state. And then on Wednesday with that high um, moving slightly further east, we do see the winds tending light northerly, So After some morning fog in the east, we're looking at a dry and sunny day across the state and those temperatures increasing again, looking at the high 20s to low 30s in the south, mid to high 30s across uh, the north of the state. And uh, we will see some afternoon coastal sea breezes as well, but uh, overall relatively uh, light winds on Wednesday. And then not too much change on the Thursday. We'll see temperatures in the mid to high 30s again across the north, Uh, low to mid-30s in the south with some weak afternoon coastal sea breezes, but overall uh, dry and sunny conditions. However, on Friday we do see uh, a low-pressure trough uh, pushing into western parts throughout the afternoon and then into central Victoria uh, later in the day. So we do see northerly winds shifting milder southwesterly from the west and potentially some isolated afternoon shower and thunderstorm activity over central and eastern parts, but not much uh, out of that. And ahead of that change, we do see temperatures pushing into the low 40s across uh, the Mallee, 42 at Mildura, 41 at Swan Hill, and elsewhere in the north, looking at the high 30s, but in the south, generally uh, mid-30s. So uh, a change on Friday. And then into the weekend, we do see milder conditions, especially in the south, temperatures there. Back into the mid-20s but across the north still uh, quite warm looking at uh, the low to mid-30s but uh, little rainfall expected on Saturday and then on Sunday not too much change, pretty settled with temperatures uh, in the south in the mid-20s. Across the north we're looking at the low to mid-30s so overall a pretty dry week and and we do see uh, temperatures Rising as well, low-intensity heatwave conditions uh, developing Wednesday, uh, continuing into Friday before that change um, pushes across. So, yeah, a pretty uh, typical sort of week for this time of year, but um, we do see uh, see very little rainfall.
1: Yeah, not a heap of rain on the radar at all, is there, Michael?
14: No, that's right. And also uh, no warnings current uh, as well. We'll have to keep an eye on fire weather conditions towards uh, the end of the week, but uh, even then, not looking particularly windy um, despite that change pushing through.
1: Brilliant, Michael. Thanks for that. Thanks, Warwick. Uh, Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Michael Efron, taking you through the full forecast there. Uh, Not a lot in the way of warnings at the moment, as you heard, and, and or rain, really, on that forecast there. But if anything changes, you know where to find the forecast at the same time every day here on the Country Hour, where it is 22 to one o'clock. Let's go to Canberra now, where Australia's Trade Minister, Don Farrell, will soon travel to China. The invitation to visit his Chinese counterpart comes almost three years after major disruptions to a number of exports. Reporter Kath Sullivan asked the Minister if his forthcoming visit was a sign that the relationship is now fixed. We made a lot of progress
15: uh, last year when uh, the Prime Minister met um, uh, the President of China and our Foreign uh, Minister and the Chinese Foreign Ministers uh, met. And, of course, this week I met uh, with my um, counterpart, Minister Wang. Um, we've started the thaw in the relationship, as, uh, as they would describe it. Um, so I'm um, optimistic um, that progress is going to be made um, in respect of all of the issues that uh, are now standing between us.
16: Can we expect the trade to ever, to ever to resume and to be what it was?
15: Look, there's no reason why that can't happen. Um, but, of course, I think one of the lessons of uh, of the China experience is that um, we need to diversify our trading relationship. That's why we've entered into uh, new agreements with India that's why we've entered into uh, new agreements with the United Kingdom. And that's why we're uh, deep in discussions with the uh, European Union.
16: I want to ask you about those in just a moment. But on China, when do you expect to travel there? And will you be meeting in Beijing or Shanghai or perhaps another city?
15: Um, well, look, the, the ball's in the, uh, the Chinese court um, at, just at the moment. Um, I'm expecting uh, that to be soon. Obviously, I, I got the invitation. I accepted it uh, immediately. Um, I did indicate that um, I uh, had been to Shanghai before and um, uh, there did seem to be a preference for uh, for going there. So it might end up being Shanghai. And when? Look, um, I, I can't give you a definite date. I wish I could, um, but I don't think we're far away now.
16: We've seen a shipment of Australian coal arrive in China, the first in years. When do you expect Australian lobsters might arrive there?
15: Well, we've had some good news uh, in in that regard. Uh, for the first time uh, in uh, quite a few years, uh, an Australian uh, lobster company uh, submitted an application for import um, of uh, lobsters into uh, into China, and the uh, uh, the application was not rejected. So. Um, Again, I see that as a positive sign in the relationship. But you won't put a
16: timeline on that one?
15: No, look, um, these problems didn't occur overnight and um, unfortunately they're not going to be solved uh, overnight. Um, My job is to make as much progress on as many fronts uh, to try and get as many of these um, trade impediments uh, resolved and quickly resolved.
16: When do you expect Australian timber might be received in China?
15: Well, again, there are some indications that orders uh, orders are coming through. So there's been a few products which um, progress uh, seems to be uh, heading in the right direction. Um, and, uh, again, I would be hopeful um, that in the very near future, um, our timber products will in, be coming back into uh, into China.
16: Will Australia walk away from the complaints it's made to the World Trade Organisation about China's tariffs on barley and, and wine?
15: Look, there are two important cases. Um, we've be, we believe we've got um, a very strong case in both, uh, uh, both in respect to wine and in respect to, uh, to, to barley. Um, we're not going to withdraw those uh, applications But right from the day I got this job eight months ago, I said, look, we would much prefer to resolve all of our outstanding trade disputes by discussion and dialogue. And that's the message I gave to uh, my counterpart uh, this week. Um, we, We would much prefer to resolve these issues by discussion and dialogue.
16: Over the summer, the agriculture minister, Murray Watt, traveled to Europe to spruik the credentials, the sustainability credentials of Australian farmers. Are you concerned about their reputation overseas and should producers here expect tough green requirements, things like chemical use and on-land clearing, as part of a trade deal with the EU?
15: Look, I don't th- believe any of those issues will be impediments to us uh, reaching an agreement with the uh, European uh, Union. Um, I spoke with my counterpart on uh, last Sunday night, uh, both of us have given our negotiators uh, instructions to proceed as quickly as possible. Um, obviously they 'll have issues on the table as as do we, um, but i 'd be confident that uh, we can satisfactorily resolve all of all of the outstanding issues at the moment um, we 've got about fifty negotiators this week um, locked up in the, the DFAT offices and i 'm um, I'm, I'm again confident that um, we 're making progress there. Um, and um, there'll be a very satisfactory outcome for Australian farmers.
1: That's Australia's Trade Minister, Don Farrell, speaking there to Cath Sullivan. We'd love to know if you're a producer in any of those re- uh, industries that has been locked out by China, if you like what you're hearing from the Trade Minister, if you think the Australian government are doing um, well with their approach to reopen markets, or if you are still frustrated, you can let us know. 1300 Nine double seven triple two, or send a text zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. Let's go a little closer to home though. Now, where three people have been fined twenty four thousand dollars after illegally taking one hundred fish from an East Gippsland river system. Our Director of Education and Enforcement with the Victorian Fisheries Authority, Ian Parks, can join you to tell you more on the program now. Welcome to the Country Hour. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Warwick. What happened here?
11: Um, so, um, last year we, we got a tip off actually from a member of the community to our one three fish hotline that we, there was some suspicious activity. And, um, our officers investigated and discovered this, um, sort of covert activity, um, on the Can River in East, East Gippsland where, um, these people had used a, what's known as a trammel net, um, across the Cairn River. Um, sort of upstream of the uh, Tamboon Inlet.
1: What does a trammel net look like?
11: Well, a trammel net actually has three layers to it and um, trammel nets are totally prohibited in in Victoria. Not even commercial fishers can use them because they entangle the fish. Uh, They've got a a net down the centre and two nets on the side that um, operate pretty indiscriminately.
1: So do you know if the illegal fishing going on here was recreational fishers doing the wrong thing or a, or an illegal commercial operation?
11: Uh, definitely an illegal commercial operation. Um, this is well beyond any recreational fishing activity. There was a degree of uh, covert nature of this, uh, preparedness, planning, et cetera, and um, at least one of these has uh, been caught doing a similar thing before.
1: So these offenders appeared in the Bansdale Magistrates Court. Uh, $24,000 in
11: fines? $24,000 in fine, but also um, we estimate around $60,000 in assets forfeited as well, which included a a 2019 Mercedes-Benz ute, uh, a boat, some equipment, etc. So a pretty significant outcome, but also they were banned for fishing for two years as well.
1: Do you hope this serves as a warning to other uh, illegal commercial fishing types, that uh, that punishment and, and there is that risk that you could be caught?
11: I, I definitely think so. And look, this is a very rare occurrence, this type of operation. Um, the majority of uh, people in Victoria do the right thing, above the bag and size limits. This is just a something that's outside the normal and very unusual.
1: You prompted the, the next question. I was going to ask you how big a problem illegal fishing is in Victoria. It doesn't sound like you you think it's a widespread problem. Look, at,
11: um, yeah, we like I said, most people do the right thing. There's a very small proportion of the community that um, chance their arms, so to speak, to um, uh, do illegal fishing for commercial gain. Um, we um, work hard. You know, my staff of officers around the state work really hard with the community to uh, stop that more serious offending from happening. Um, and this this is a good deterrent for, for that more serious uh, crime.
1: And as you say, this um, punishment, basically, and, and uh, catching these criminals here was brought about by tip-offs to your hotline.
11: Exactly. And um, that's the key thing here. Um, if If people think about doing this type of activity, we've got the whole community of anglers and um, people out there enjoying outdoors that are watching out for it, and they'll let us know pretty quickly um, if this sort of activity happens and allows us to respond to it.
1: Well, Ian Parks, thanks very much for telling us a little bit about it today on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Warwick, Ian Park's there Director of Education. And enforcement with the Victorian Fisheries Authority speaking to you on the on the program, where uh, three uh, men undertaking an illegal fishing operation have been fined twenty four thousand uh, dollars and had assets forfeited as well, including a Mercedes jewel cab. Uh, as well as fish traps, a boat and trailer worth a combined, well, more than a combined $60,000, says the Fisheries Authority. You're listening to The Country Hour from local. will go international now. An energy crisis in South of South Africa has farmers and food processors there rushing to invest in small-scale renewable energy. For over 100 days, South Africans have dealt with load shedding, a a spate of rolling blackouts that have lasted for up to eight hours in January. The chief economist of the South African Agricultural Business Chamber, uh, Wondale Salobo, told Clint Jasper the crisis poses a national security risk.
3: It's quite severe, uh, uh, Clint, and it's negatively affecting a a large share of agriculture because to give you just a, a glimpse of how energy dependent South Africa's primary agriculture is, we derive roughly about half of the farming income uh, from the farms that are heavily, heavy users of agriculture through irrigation, and some, of course, in the poultry and the dairy space. So the current blackout, it goes into different stages. We have what we call stage one, stage two. That means how many hours you wouldn't have uh, electricity. On stage two, you wouldn't have electricity, save about four hours a day in different two-hour slots. But when it goes beyond that stage, let's say we're on stage three all the way to stage five, then the hours could stretch to about six to nearly eight hours for some.
2: Is there always a degree of load shedding in South Africa that's particularly bad at the moment, or is it a new practice?
3: This is a new practice. We've had load shedding in various intervals since around about 2008. But I mean, we then went for years without actually seeing this. It's the first time now that we're seeing it as severe as, uh, as in the present. In fact, starting from January this year, that's where everybody saw that we have a crisis in our door.
2: What are farmers doing to adapt to this? The farmers
3: uh, this time around, they've actually looked into this load shedding to say, Can we look at it uh, uh, and also as as an advantage for greening the South African agricultural sector, making sure that the solar farms are are, are put up in place, and then some that can generate power using biogas can do that. So they are all of these own generation, but more to the green side that people are thinking about. And the South African government is also thinking of the ways of saying, how do we subsidize? Our own generation in the farm so that the farmers can put their own uh, energy generation. And of course, over time, there is uh, thinking that maybe this the South African state-owned energy utility, ESCOM, can buy back some of the energy from some of these farms that they won't be using either in winter or during the day if they only use their energy at night uh, for, for irrigation. So those are some of the things that I look we are looking at. There's legislative work that is happening, but also thinking about how do we set up subsidies for own generation in the farms. And some farmers who have a good balance sheet have already started to put some of these alternative energy sources in their farms.
2: And given it's been in place for roughly a year, you know, a total season of production for many commodities, what's it actually cost farmers so far?
3: We we are still trying to to estimate uh, all of the costs in South Africa, but right now it's well over 1 billion rands um, that we, 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 we see already cost over 1 billion South African rands that has cost farmers uh, so far. And of course, load shedding only intensified a lot in January. It's been a month where we've actually seen in intensified loading. Before that, for much of last year, it was still at manageable stages where you would see stage two, stage one, and some days you'll go for weeks without actually being load shed, and farmers were able to manage their production system. And the, this can uh, affect both the farming side, but also the food processing uh, side as Mm. well as the beverages processing side. So it's a both value chain situation to the extent that in South Africa now we are thinking to say, look, how do we ensure that the food, beverages and fibre industry is actually slightly insulated from heavy load shedding so that it doesn't end up presenting the food security risks to the country.
2: You did some writing around the fact that with the grid so unstable and this load shedding it actually does present like a a national security risk
3: absolutely these are some of the key things then that we we currently thinking about which is why the private sector of south africa with government and escom has actually been in some of the conversation say is there a way we can lessen the 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 energy um uh, blackouts for those areas that are largely irrigation or uh, in food production. But of course, that all depends technically about how everyone is linked to the grid. But it is one of those priorities.
1: That's Chief Economist of the South African Agricultural Business Chamber, Wondale Salobo, speaking there with Clint Jasper. Interesting to hear how agriculture's dealing with rolling blackouts in that country as well. Just before we head to markets here on the country, a couple of your texts on the Trade Minister's negotiations with China and how things are going there. This one says Aussies won't be able to afford crayfish again. Robin from Hamilton, though, says barley's still going out of Portland to China. It's just going via another country to get around the ban. Maybe we should look more into that. And James saying China's helping out Russia to beat Ukraine, so why would we help them and potentially reward them with lobster? Thank you very much for your text as well. we better head to markets. Uh, 64. dollars, $60, $60. thanks. you, better. Thank Few to get through today. Let's start in Pakenham with Brendan Fletcher. G'day. Warwick numbers decreased to 1,070. That's 170 fewer, with the
4: usual buyers operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality declined in the young cattle and improved in the grown. The best vealers lifted, while secondary young cattle eased 15 to 20 cents. Bullocks eased 14, manufacturing steers lost 6 to 8. Cows sold from firm to 10 cents easier and heavy bulls lifted 5. Vealers sold from 330 to 490. Yearling trade steers 375 to 460. The heifer portion 345 to 440. Ground steers and bullocks 344 to 384. Heavy Frisian manufacturing steers 282 to 310. Crossbreds 282 to 366. Most light and medium weight cows 185 to 275. Heavyweights 260 to 338. Heavy bulls 272 to 320. This is Brendan
9: Fletcher reporting for MLA.
1: Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Let's head to Mortlake in the cattle market there.
9: G'day, Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. This is an interim report. As The sale is still in progress and cows are still to be sold. There's a dramatic increase of numbers of 1,458 cattle this week at Mortlake, an increase of some 407, where the quality was good to plain over most categories. With all the regular processors in attendance together with feeders. In a market that's firm to 10 cents stronger for the better end, however, some plainer cattle on offer were softer. With cows still to be sold, the pick of the veal is making between 345 to 418, yielding steers and heifers between 360 and 398. The grown steers and heifers have topped out at 395 cents. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. Let's head to the Wagga cattle now.
1: Good afternoon, Leanne Dax.
6: Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 2,885. Quality was mostly secondary, suiting lot feeders and restockers. Trade cattle were again in short supply. Cattle prices bounced around across secondary categories which all came down to the breed. Trade cattle buyers remained selective and subdued. Lightweight steers to the paddock were back 50 cents, 4.20 to 5.24. Trade steers, too few to quote, 3.20 to 4.00. dollars. Trade heifers were back 30 cents, 3.22 to 3.80. Feeder steers were firm to 7 cents easier. Medium weight, 3.40 to 4.10. The lighter weights out to 4.40. Feeder heifers, medium weight were firm, 3.22 to 3.00. 96. Lighter weight slipped back 25, 313 to 419. Heavy feeder steers were unchanged, 306 to 402. Heavy kill steers were back 4 cents, 320 to 380. Bullocks were firm, 366 to 380. And heavy cows are also unchanged, 286 to 312. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA.
1: Thanks very much for that Leanne and lucky last today's Jenny Kelly who's at the Bendigo Sheep and Land Market for us. Good afternoon Jenny.
7: Good afternoon. Similar lamb numbers at 13,000 but a step back in quality again with less weight and finish. One major exporter and one major domestic didn't operate and overall the buying group showed less intensity and demand for numbers. The market tended to drift down with lamb prices tracking from firm to 3 to $8 a head off, although there was bigger falls over some of the plainer store lambs which didn't receive a lot of interest. Heavy export lambs 235 to a top of 254 dollars. The heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs varied from 201 to 234. Best heavy trades 24 to 26 kilos 186 to 206. General run of trades 160 to 195. Carcass spread of 7.20 to about eight bucks, with most lambs sitting between 7.60 to 790 cents Crossbred store lambs with frame 110 to 150, but there was several large lines of very small unshorn lambs at 34 to 48 dollars. Sheep market opened dearer before showing a much cheaper trend in late sales. Heavy crossbred used 98 to 151, best merinos to 144. Jenny Kelly for MLA.
1: Thanks very much for that, Jenny. That's about all the time we have for you on The Country Hour today. Uh, Just a reminder, if you've missed parts of The Country Hour, maybe you're off watching the Super Bowl halftime show today. Well, you can always catch up with us and what went to where by finding your way to the Victorian Country Hour podcast. You can have a listen to this program or any of the previous programs there or listen back to something that you think you might have missed. So if you want to go over what the Trade Minister said, just uh, wait till the podcast is up from today's show and you'll be able to, to tune in there and pick up all the information that you need. And... Now I'm back. I'd love to get out on the road a little bit more. So if you've got an agricultural event or if you're doing something interesting on farm that you think we should come and broadcast from, always send us an email, countryhour@abc.net.au. That's countryhouratabc.net.au. Tell Tell me what's going on or where you think we should get to. Love to take this program out on location a lot more in 2023. Hope you have a great afternoon. We'll be back with you at the same time tomorrow.